Next Sunday is the beginning of Advent. We're singing some great hymns today, and you're looking forward to Advent because there's going to be some great hymns to sing for Advent and Christmas. And I wonder, do you, do you have any favorite hymns? I bet most of you do have a couple of favorite hymns. I've got, I've got a favorite hymn. My favorite hymn is, uh, in the hymnal, it's number 708. It's called, Lord, Be I Loved With All My Heart. It was written in 1567 by an editing Martin Now, before you begin to think that, okay, here's another one of these preachers who only likes Bach and Beethoven and will only accept the Lutheran chorale as a genuine hymn, my next favorite hymn is number 550 in the Lutheran hymnal, and it's, it's Lamb of God, which you should be familiar with. It was written in 1985 by Twyla Paris. Now, how a hymn written by Twyla Paris ever managed to get into the Lutheran hymnal, I never know, but, but what a marvelous hymn that is, too. Now, I bet you do have a favorite hymn or two that you really appreciate singing. And you know, there's something special about our hymns. They, they help to form our faith. We, we gather so much that strengthens us by what it is that we sing. And what surprised me uh, in preparation for today, as I was working through Paul's letter to the Colossians and the text we had in the epistle reading, was to discover that most modern commentators today look at a portion of that reading as a hymn. A hymn. Now, there is some controversy over whether or not this was a hymn written by Paul himself, and he's the author, and this is the first time it's out there for people, or whether it may have been actually a hymn already in common use among Christians. I mean, that too is, would be a possibility. Either way, what it does tell us is less than 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus himself, there already was a pattern of worship that was involved for the early Christian church that involved the singing of hymns. So as you look at this text, the hymn part really starts in verse 15. And it's a two-verse hymn. A two-verse hymn. And what separates both of the verses is going to be the word firstborn, because that separates these two sections. Talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. And then comes the second verse. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this morning what I would like to do with you is look at both of these verses 
See what kinds of things might have been taught by these verse hymns, this, this, these hymn verses to the early church itself, what it teaches us today, and how it also strengthens our faith, and answers the question that you have with the very first verses of the Colossians reading, which has to do is who exactly is this beloved son that's been given to us? Well, so we begin with verse 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does it mean that he's the image of God? Well, it doesn't mean that he's like a statue or an idol of what God would look like. No, it, it's different than that. He's the image of God. It's like how, how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus. The author of Hebrews writes, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power. You know, this isn't the first time the word image winds up being used in Scripture. When Adam was created, he was created, recall, in the image of God. But Jesus is the image of God. We call Adam the first Adam, and in theology we call Jesus the second Adam. Why? Because for all the ways in which the first Adam messed up, the second Adam, Jesus, corrected. You know, the first Adam desired to be like God, following the suggestion of Eve. He wanted to be like God, but the second Adam did not grasp the fact that he was God as something to hold on to. The first Adam wanted to exalt himself. The second Adam humbled himself. Mm. The first Adam, why, he disobeyed. The second Adam kept God's will perfectly and obeyed even to the extent of the cross. For all the ways in which that first Adam lost the divine image, the image of God, the second Adam, restores that image for us. And then it tells us that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now there's a sad part about this story, about uh, this term. Because in the fourth century, there was a priest monk by the name of Arius who read these words and assumed because it said that he was the firstborn of creation, that that meant that Jesus himself was part of creation. That Jesus was a created being, rather than being the uncreated second person of the Trinity. Now that teaching gained widespread acceptance among large portions of the church. Well, the problem is, what Arius failed to do and what he ignored was the very context of the words that he was looking at. It says he's the firstborn of all creation because all things were created through him and for him. So how could he, he was the created being, how could he possibly also be the one who created all things? There 
that I might wonder, well, isn't this kind of a subtle distinction to be drawn as we're thinking about Jesus? No. This is something that's really, really important. You see, because if Jesus is not both true man and true God, then there's some problems with how he saves us. If Jesus is not true God, then how could his sacrifice on the cross have been sufficient for not only his own, not only my sins and your sins, but for the sins of the whole world? And what does it say about the resurrection? How could the promise, though Jesus himself was raised, how could his resurrection possibly extend to give us the promise of our own resurrection? If he was not also true God. He is true God. And that's why we confess together with the Nicene Creed, as we said, that he is of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now the sad thing about this story regarding Arius is that the misunderstandings of Arius did not evaporate with time. They're still with us in the world today, so that for all those who look Jesus as if he was just a good man, a good example for us to follow, just a good teacher who had a lot of wonderful lessons, well, of course, which is a good teacher with a lot of wonderful lessons for us to know, but that that was all, that it was not also the Savior whose death and resurrection would bring to us the forgiveness of sins. You know, that, that idea is still around, and that's the sad. The hymn that Paul writes doesn't make any mistake like this at all. It says he is the creator. And think about that for a minute. If there is a creator, it means that you and I are living within a creation. Living within a creation changes the entire way in which we look at things. It changes how we view the world around us. It alters how we interpret that world and how we understand it and how we relate to each other as well. You see, if there is a creator, it means that the world cannot be meaningless. The universe cannot simply be a random accident because there was some big bang. Things that happen in this world cannot just be random events. We're not living in a purposeless world. We're not living in a meaningless world. Because we're living in a creation, we're living in a universe that is filled with meaning, that's filled with purpose, that's filled with design, that's filled with, with intention for us. And it reflects that powerful, almighty mind of God himself. There was a 16th century astronomer, one of the early great astronomers, who also happened to be a Lutheran theologian. His name was Johannes Kepler. He is actually the one who put together what we now even use as the three laws of planetary motion. Now, true, they were a little tweaked by Newton, but Kepler was the guy who started it. And 
we, we still use these three laws of, of planetary motion today. When he was asked how it was that he came about the, this, this discovery, he said, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. We live in a created universe. Have you ever heard the term um, reverse engineering? Have you ever heard the term reverse engineering? Yeah, it's, it's, when, it's when you're running a business and you're making some kind of thing, and suddenly your competitor starts putting out one that's better than yours. What you've got to do then is, is you've got to go and buy one of your competitors, take it apart, and try to figure out how it's working, right? Because you're in competition. You, you've got to fix your own so that it's at least as good as your competitor. That's reverse engineering. Do you realize that that's what we do with science all the time? All the wonderful discoveries that, that are made by science, it's all reverse engineering. And one of the greatest discoveries was when the DNA molecule was discovered. We discovered that, that we ourselves are made up of molecules and proteins that are like a four-letter language. It was all a language. And what are we doing when we work with that but merely thinking God's thoughts after him? What a wonderful thing that the people of the early church had a hymn that they could sing. They were talking about Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, who, with all of the Father, made all things, filled with intention and purpose. Now we go on to the second verse, and now what can we learn? Well, this Jesus, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be Preeminent. Okay, uh, what does the word preeminent mean? Well, if you look at our mind, which is what I did, <laughs> I discovered that it means surpassing all others. To be preeminent means that Jesus surpasses all others. In what respect? Well, my guess is in every respect. But you know that uh, language that we use is, is changing in the sports world right now. There is a term that completely changed its meaning probably within the last 30 years. You know, there, no one ever, 30 years ago, wanted to be the GOAT. You know, the GOAT was the person who, uh, okay, so it's a close game. They're going to kick a field goal and they're going to win the game, but the field goal gets blocked and then it gets taken by the other team and run back for a touchdown. And, okay, who are you going to blame for this? Who was the goat? Maybe it was a lineman to get in so that they could block the field goal or whatever. You know what it means today? Every quarterback wants to be the goat. Every NASCAR driver wants to be the GOAT. Every golfer wants to be the GOAT. Because today it now stands for greatest of all time. So you see, just so for your own benefit, that next time you see an article that's talking about the GOAT, don't get confused by this. It's easy to get confused by it. No, 
Now it means greatest of all time. This hymn is teaching us that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's the greatest of all time. Now, it was after I had thought of using God as an illustration that it suddenly dawned on me in the Old Testament there's another way in which goat winds up being used. I see some of you out in your head. I think you know where I'm going with this. The greatest of all the Old Testament feasts and festivals was the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats that were used along with a ram. Now, on the Day of Atonement, those were brought into the, temple, the tabernacle area, later the temple area, and one of the goats and the ram were sacrificed, and their blood was taken and put upon the altar. But the other goat, the other goat had the high priest place his hands on the head of that goat, placing the sins of all the people from that year onto that goat. Did they know what happened to the goat? They would drive it, it's a scapegoat, right? They would drive the goat out into the desert to die, taking with the goat all the sins. You know what you need for forgiveness? You know what you need for reconciliation with God, your Heavenly Father? You need the goat. But it wasn't the goat from the Old Testament that was driven out into the desert. That one was simply a foreshadowing of what was to come. You need the greatest of all time. Because you know where it was that God the Heavenly Father placed not just the sins of one group of people from one certain year onto an animal, but it was God the Heavenly Father who was placing all the sins of all people of all time upon his son Jesus Christ on the cross. For there they could be forgiven. So that you have the forgiveness of sins and know that you are reconciled to God your Heavenly There are so many wonderful things that our hymns teach us and form our faith and strengthen our faith. I don't think there is any competent um, commentator or author of a, of a commentary today that would ever take the sports illustration of, of greatest of all time goats and try and apply that. Um, but I did today because I think you might remember this. <laughs> and that's a good thing. What do you need for your salvation life? You need the greatest of all time. And that's Jesus. And what a wonderful thing to know on Christ the King Sunday that you have Jesus. Now, there are other hymn portions that we find in Scripture. In fact, you know, the New Testament is just filled with these from Revelation, where you know the, the 24 elders are casting down their golden crowns before them glassy sea before the Lord Jesus Christ. Or that hymn verse that Paul has in 1 Corinthians, there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And then that other great hymn, 
that even winds up printed in your Bibles in a verse form from Philippians chapter 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, these hymns that we sing, they're so important to us, but they come from God's Word, and the promises that they share with us are from God's Word. But, Remember I said my favorite hymn was number 708? It's actually the third verse that I love the most. And that's why I'm going to read it to you. This is Lord, be I love with all my heart. Lord, let at last thy angels come to Abraham's bosom bearing hold, that I may die unfearing, and in its narrow chamber keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. And then from death awaken me, that these mine eyes with joy may see. O Son of God, thy glorious face, my Savior and my font of grace, Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer attend, my prayer attend, and I will praise thee without end. Christ the King, sir. Reconciled you, he's one who's 